Hello, Galactic Castaways. This is Alpha Control, the podcast about Irwin Allen's classic sci-fi adventure TV series, Lost in Space. I am your mission controller for this podcast, Colonel Lane August, and I'm joined by my trusty co-controller, Dr. Kurt Kersteiner. Kurt and I are old college chums, children of the 1960s, and most importantly, big fans of Lost in Space. Welcome aboard as we blast off together to celebrate Erwin Allen's Lost in Space. Now, let's get ready to launch. This is the beginning. This is the day. You are watching the unfolding of one of history's great adventures. Man's colonization of space beyond the stars. This is Alpha Control, zero minus one hour and 15 minutes and holding. Delay caused by difficulty with liquid oxygen loading valve. Zero minus one hour and 15 minutes and holding. TV satellite control, take over. Ladies and gentlemen, today the first of what may be as many as 10 million families per year is setting out on its epic voyage into man's newest frontier for colonization, deep space. Reaching out into other worlds from our desperately overcrowded planet, a series of deep-thrust telescopic probes have conclusively established a planet orbiting the star Alpha Centauri as the only one within range of our technology able to furnish ideal conditions for human existence. Even now, the family chosen for this incredible journey into space is preparing to take their final pre-liftoff physical tests. The Robinson family was selected from more than two million volunteers for its unique balance of scientific achievement, emotional stability, and pioneer resourcefulness. They will spend the five and a half years of their voyage frozen into a state of suspended animation, which will terminate automatically as the spacecraft enters the atmosphere of the new planet. This is Alpha Control. We are at zero minus one hour and 15 minutes and still holding. We have also encountered an electrical power failure in our computer at the Lunar Tracking Station. Welcome to Episode 1 of Alpha Control, a Lost in Space podcast. I'm Lane. And I'm Kurt. Hey, Kurt. How you doing? Doing pretty good. All ready to blast off here into the cold, icy vacuum of outer space. Oh, the pain. Well, that's good. This is something we've been thinking about doing for quite a while, and we finally got our act together and uh, decided to jump into the crazy world of podcasting. I'm so psyched that we're going to get to do it about Lost in Space. You know, one of the fun things about Lost in Space is it's so childish that, you know, you think, <laughs> we, we don't want to do a show about that. It's so childish. But then when you do the show about that, you just enjoy kind of reliving that childhood again. It's, it really brings back a lot of great memories. Oh, well, it certainly does for me. You know, we were talking about this before, you know, both of us uh, grew up in the 60s uh, watching Lost in Space, and we've shared a lot of memories about the show over the years. It was a real impact of my life, along with a lot of other shows uh, from that era, but Lost in Space in particular left a big mark on my life. I was just visiting my mom, actually, this last weekend, and I found 
Uh, of all things, I got very few things left at my mom's house, but I found of all things, I'm going to show you this. The listeners can't see it, but this is a, actually a drawing I made when I was uh, nine years old. Oh, I don't my know gosh. if you can see, and it <laughs> got see this. The robot. Danger, danger, artist, danger. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. That's actually uh, an indication of how much uh, this show meant to me. This is a very wow. large poster of the Lost in Space robot. It is. The, the, the design is actually pretty accurate. It's just the colors are like, were you doing drugs? at that time or something because the psychedelic nature of the colors are way off well it's done in magic marker but the fumes from magic markers can be quite uh (laughs) euphoric if you sniff them too long but uh, we won't go into that now okay uh, anyway we're going to talk about the premiere episode the premiere broadcast episode of lost in space you're trying to do a little bit of research, but uh, one of the primary references that I've used is a really cool three-volume series of books by Mark Cushman called Irwin Allen's Lost in Space, the authorized biography of a classic sci-fi series. This book is like 700 pages, and it just covers season one. Does it have a lot of interviews in there, people talking memories? Yes, lots of good <laughs> lots of good interviews, and I'm sure little factoids from the interviews will come up as we talk about the episode. So. That's one of the neat things about this series is there's some uh, shows like Leave it to Beaver where everybody is very nice and polite, and then there's other series where everybody is just like sticking the knife in the back of everyone. Lost in Space is a pleasant mix of both. You know, you get the really angelic uh, people like June Lockhart, and then you get the kind of, I won't mention any names, but the, <laughs> the shop duckers, but they're there. Yes. I can assure you that. Well, it, the cast of the show was really top shelf. I mean, I guess we should talk about the concept for the show. Irwin Allen, he was a well-known Hollywood producer, started off in radio in Los Angeles in the 1930s, worked his way into local television there, eventually got into movie producing in the late 40s, 50s, and in the 60s, really became kind of an icon. His big movie before he started going into television producing was Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea that starred Walter Pidgeon, and that was of course, the inspiration for the television series Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea. which started in 1964, one year before Lost in Space. And it was a big hit on ABC. Very serious show, but science fiction-y type show. People said, well, it reminded them a lot of 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea from Jules Verne. And of course, Erwin Allen wasn't bashful to say, well, any good story is worth telling again and again. And so he always found a way to do that. Same thing with Lost in Space. The inspiration for Lost in Space was the Swiss family Robinson, but with a twist. In space. From the world of tomorrow comes a thrilling new television series, Lost in Space. In space, you know, so if it's good on land, it's got to be even better in space, right? Yeah, it'll be like the Infinity series. Buy them all. <laughs> the stars come out on CBS with Lost in Space. Here are the amazing adventures of a group of space pioneers marooned on an uncharted planet. Adventure as challenging as tomorrow, as far out as the stars. 
Now, it does deserve mentioning that, you know, Lost in Space beat Star Trek to the screen. It was kind of the first serious science fiction TV series. Well, <laughs> serious in quotation marks. But the first uh, season was pretty serious. Spectacle beyond imagination as the astronauts struggle for survival in a strange new world where incredible dangers seem to wait at every turn. Intriguing, thrilling, challenging. These are the adventures you will share. Lost in Space. So it, it beat him to the punch, and, uh, you know, it deserves uh, kudos for that. Oh, absolutely. Yes, it did beat Star Trek to broadcast TV, even though the pilots for both shows were done around the same time. And it's kind of an interesting thing about the show we're going to talk about tonight. The broadcast premiere is titled The Reluctant Stowaway. But that was not actually the pilot that was used to sell the series to CBS. The pilot was called No Place to Hide. It took about 20 days of shooting schedule. It was very expensive, close to $700,000 in 1965, which was over $5 million today. And it was also interesting because it lacked two pretty iconic characters from the actual broadcast show. Dr. Smith and the robot were not actually in the pilot. Well, uh, it lacked Dr. Smith, but it didn't lack Doctor. The Doctor was Dr. West. So instead of being this kind of strong-headed pilot, he was a PhD. I don't even know if uh, <laughs> Professor Robinson had his PhD or not. I mean, you can be a professor without being a PhD, but I'm sure he did. Sure. Nonetheless, it would have been Dr. West. And I guess they figured there'd be too many doctors on board if they uh, squeezed a, a third one in there. So they just made him a strong-willed pilot. Major, major. And I am a colonel, sir. (laughs) Indeed. And so it was different, but it was also very high concept, high production values. They spent a lot of money on it. It really showed. Even after they sold the series, they looked back and said, you know, there's some elements. If we're going to keep writing scripts for this show for the long term, we need to add a little bit of inbuilt conflict. And so they added the Dr. Smith character and the robot. The robot was actually initially intended to be in the pilot, but they just didn't get around to putting it in. But, of course, today we remember Will, Dr. Smith, and the robot as sort of being the three biggies from the series. Even though Irwin Allen was such a shrewd recycler to the point where it's almost, you know, painful how how much he did it, he, he gets credit for adding Dr. Smith and the robot into the premiere, interjecting it, splicing it into, and it's not really that obvious that it's been, you know, spliced in there. He, he does a good job of recycling all that original footage and adding those two vital characters. Oh, yeah. I think it is really good. As a matter of fact, there was enough material from the pilot that they actually used footage from the pilot in the first five or six episodes. 
just a few little details about the production. The writer for The Reluctant Stowaway was the same writer that did the pilot episode. His name was Shimon Winselberg. I think I'm pronouncing that right. Although if you look at the credits, he's actually listed by the name of S. Bar David. And there's sort of a whole background story about that. He got into a little tiff with Irwin Allen about some of the changes to the dialogue that were done by the story editor, Tony Wilson. But uh, <laughs> I refuse to have the, the name Shimon placed on this script <laughs> when such wonderful dialogue has been altered in any way, shape or form. Right. Well, I mean, you know, that's not unusual for Hollywood script writers that they get very particular about how they're accredited for certain things. But nonetheless, he was actually also assigned the job of writing the stories for the first five episodes, which again featured footage from the unaired pilot. The, ir- the irony would be, of course, if later on in the series, where the series just goes, you voyage to the bottom of the dialogue chain, <laughs> then he starts allowing him to use his real name, you know, because they don't change the dialogue at all. <laughs> yeah, I know. It is kind of interesting. Uh, the director for this first episode, Tony Leader, he did this episode, I think maybe one or two other episodes. Producer Jerry Briskin, executive producer Erwin Allen, of course. The show was filmed from the 19th through the 28th of July, 1965. That was eight days, which was two days over the studio allotted six-day production schedule that they had budgeted for. This would be a trend throughout the first season of going over budget and over filming days. It aired on Wednesday night, September 15th, 1965, 7.30. That was the family hour on CBS, the Tiffany Network. And there was no summer repeat of this episode. It was only aired once during the original broadcast season. Yeah, I missed this Uh, episode when I was a kid. I didn't see the the Cyclops or any of that stuff. So when the models came out, I was like, wow, why don't they include that in the actual (laughs) series? But, you know, back in those days, there was no VCR. You missed it. You missed it. Well, that's true. And that's something that today we don't quite understand is like basically there were three broadcast television channels, ABC, NBC, and then CBS. And, you know, you had to fight for the right to to decide what channel the TV was on in your household. And if you missed it on the uh, night that was originally aired, you may not get to see it again until hopefully it was going to be shown up in reruns. So that's kind of an interesting point. The first season was filmed in black and white. And of course, that was a cost-saving measure since color filming added around thirty dollars to $40,000 per episode. And Erwin Allen, if anything, was very conscious of his budget. But I like that. I like that they had that separation because the first season was kind of a classic science fiction. And it kind of gave a film noir look to it, a more serious, moody look to it. And you know, when the color came in, so did a lot more of the comedy. Uh, so it's, it's a nice little separation, if you will. I agree totally. I think if you ask, everyone seems to think that the first season is really the best. It's certainly the the most serious of the three seasons. I, I agree with you. The black and white cinematography adds a whole different level to it. Some of the episodes have a lot more sinister, dark uh, theme to them, and the black and white certainly adds to that. And not only is it more atmospheric, but you know, imagine, if you will, if like someone like the Turner Network said, well, we're going to go back and we're going to colorize the first season. I mean, we go like, <laughs> what? You know, please, come on. <laughs> it, it would not work. I would join the petition drive, probably led by uh, Woody Allen, 
saying how <laughs> just completely destroyed the the cinematic auteurism of Irwin Allen. No, no, it would be like good. trying to go back and colorize the outer limits. It just would not work. Some of those episodes, there are genuinely scary parts that are going down. And the music is that way, too. I mean, the music is right up there with uh, some of the scariest music that had been done. And I'm kind of surprised that some of the kids didn't, you know, uh, complain too much in letters written to CBS. How dare you frighten our children like that? We actually thought the poor little Billy was going to get eaten. It's a good point you make because that was a huge concern for CBS. I mean, again, remember, this was being shown during family hours, 7.30 to 8.30, and they would have to submit the scripts to the CBS network guys, and they would come back constantly and say, please don't let the children seem too frightened. And, you know, they were toning down some of the scenes where they had the children screaming in reaction to a monster or whatever. They say, oh, that has to go. It's kind of nice when you watch the uh, Blu-ray DVDs, they've gone back and added some of those scenes that were taken out by the CBS censors, which tells you how the directors and the producers actually wanted them to be seen. But yeah, I have to say, especially this first season, the first few episodes, really high production values. You know, each episode was allotted a budget of about $136,000, and that's like $1.5 million in today's. That's a lot of money today for a television episode. That's Uh, like what uh, one cast member of Friends would expect to get paid for a single episode. (laughs) (laughs) I should mention to the listeners, I'm a consumer. I'm an amateur. I, I have no professional training whatsoever in analyzing this stuff. I'm just a consumer, and I know what I like and what I don't like. You, on the other hand, do have professional training, so please. <laughs> you've been to film school. You've written scripts. You know how this filmmaking stuff works. But I look I at this. I am a doctor ep- of intergalactic experimental psychology. <laughs> Quack. Indeed. Indeed. <laughs> <laughs> I kind of broke this down when I watched it. For me, Act One, it's basically introducing you to the whole premise of the show. You know, we start out in Alpha Control. We get a tour of the Jupiter 2. We're introduced to the characters. The dad, John Robinson, played by Guy Williams, best known previous to this as Zorro from the Disney TV series. The Walt Disney Studios presents Zorro. Maureen Robinson, his wife, played by June Lockhart from Lassie fame. Starring June Lockhart. The pilot, Don West, as we talked about, Mark Goddard. He'd been in a couple different TV series prior to this as a starring role. Judy, the oldest daughter, played by Marta Kristen. She'd been in several uh, guest starring roles, like on Alfred Hitchcock Presents. Penny Robinson was played by Angela Cartwright, who's best known for her recurring starring role on The Danny Thomas Show, and also just right before Lost in Space premiered, one of the Von Trapp children in The Sound of Music, so no slacker there. Will, played by Billy Moomy, most probably well-remembered by a lot of folks for his role in The Twilight Zone. Um, Yeah, those were not just any episodes. Those were some of the best episodes. He did a great job, and they were eerie. You know, when he starts sending the people off into the cornfield, (laughs) who could forget that? Would somebody take a lamp or a bottle or something and end this? You're a bad man. You're a very bad man. 
And you keep thinking bad thoughts about me. Wish it into the cornfield. Please, son, wish it into the cornfield. Please. It's good. Oh, yeah. It's I, good, I, I Bailey. Feel good, Bailey. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, those are definitely iconic roles. The robot. At the time, Erwin Allen was very cagey. He would not tell anyone that the robot was not an actual robot. (laughs) It was not allowed to be done. But it was actually played by a guy in a costume, a very expensive costume, a $36,000 costume designed by Bob Kinoshita, who is also the designer of Robbie the Robot from Forbidden Planet. Bob May was inside the costume. I might point out that Dino De Lorenzis, uh, if I'm pronouncing his name correctly, pulled the same stunt 10 years later when they did the King Kong movie in 1976. He led everyone to believe that that King Kong movie was a giant robot, <laughs> which, of course, didn't exist. They had, like, a robot hand, and they had a robot uh, head, but, you know, there was no 60-foot King Kong or anything. But, you know, it made for good media, and a lot of people wrote a lot of articles about it. <laughs> yeah. Well, they were very serious about that. It was kept up for quite a while, and then towards the end of the series, they let it out that it was actually a costume, <laughs> but as if anyone couldn't tell. Voiced by Dick Tufeld, who is a very well-known voice actor and announcer in Hollywood. Good afternoon, everybody. It's Preakness Day at Pimlico. Dick Tufeld speaking from Pimlico Racetrack in Baltimore, Maryland, where in just moments, 11 horses will break for the second leg of... And, of course, the special guest star, playing Dr. Zachary Smith, the wonderful Jonathan Harris. I shall never forget what I have learned here in America. Nor will I cease to be grateful for the uncommon generosity you have shown to a poor, misguided Englishman. Yeah, how they found him, I don't know, but that was a great selection, wasn't it? I mean, uh, who else could have done that (laughs) role? That was just wonderful. Oh, yeah. He definitely lived the role, so... So act one, we're introduced to the characters. We're set up for the premise for the whole show. It's an effort to colonize another planet because Earth is overcrowded and we have to start going out to Alpha Centauri. You get a tour of the Jupiter 2, which is kind of neat too. I don't know what you thought about the design of the ship. Here now is the Jupiter 2, the culmination of nearly 40 years of intensive research and the most sophisticated piece of hardware yet devised by the mind of man. Bold in concept, brilliant in execution, this most delicate yet most colossal of instruments makes possible man's thrust into deep space and will soon set out on its quest for a new world. This super spaceship stands two stories high. The upper level contains a fantastic, sophisticated guidance control system. An electronic elevator connects both floors of the intergalactic vehicle. The upper and lower levels are operationally self-contained. Here on the lower deck, pulsating with unbelievable force, are the great atomic motors that will power the ship to new worlds. Spectacular but functional living quarters, including staterooms and galley, complete this level. Oh, 
Oh, I loved it. I thought the walkthrough was beautiful. But, you know, you failed to remind people that this is a very serious concept, overpopulation. It still threatens us today. And apparently this is all going to happen by October 16th, 1997. So we're running out of time. Absolutely. No, I was just going to say that in the uh, in the opening remarks, it says this is the first of perhaps 10 million families, and they're all going to go on a ship with about seven people on it. I mean, it's like, <laughs> that's going to be... <laughs> and then you're wondering, gonna what's going to happen to the other uh, 24 billion stuck on Earth? I mean, are they just going to sit around and, oh, bye? You know, we don't mind. We don't mind paying for these. What was it? Thirty billion dollar spaceships. That's what it cost. Right. It's like thirty billion. You can't even buy a, a toilet seat on the space shuttle for that. You know. But you know, they apparently thought we were going to be leaving Earth to go to Alpha Centauri by 1997, and here we are, 2018, and we still haven't even left the Earth's orbit yet. No man has left the Earth's orbit. We made it to the Moon, which is still technically in the orbit. We haven't made it to right. Mars. We haven't made it to uh, Mercury or, or, or Venus. I mean, it's, it's pretty pathetic. Well, lest you think that Irwin Allen was being overly optimistic, saying, you know, this was 1965, and he's projecting that we'd be able to go out into deep thrust space by 1997. I'll remind you that just a couple years later, I think it was 1968, Stanley Kubrick's 2001 projected that we'd be going at least to the planet, you know, Jupiter by 2001. We haven't done that with a manned mission either. So I give him a little license. It's science fiction. There's a little bit of, you know, suspension of disbelief, and I'm going with it for this time. Oh, yeah. It's like marketing. You don't want to tell people, and all, none of this is going to happen in your lifetime. You're never going to see it. It's a lot more exciting to infer that all this exciting adventure is going to happen while they're still alive. You may live to see this. Which may have something to do uh, with why they went from 98-year journey to Alpha Centauri and uh, readjusted it from the, the pilot to just five years, I guess, is what they rewrote it as. Remember that? That was going to be in the movie. You're right. It, it could still happen. It, you might it, still see it. <laughs> exactly. There is one additional member of this expedition, an environmental control robot key among whose many vital functions will be the final analysis of the physical environment of the new planet. The other character that we're introduced to in this opening act is the robot, of course, and I thought it was kind of interesting when he first speaks. At exactly launch plus eight hours, inertial guidance system destroy radio transmitter Destroy. Cabin pressure control system. Destroy. His voice is so very mechanical. I've forgotten how mechanical his speech is. I mean, it's clearly his voice, but it's so mechanical and so robotic, if you will. So different from the way it is. Just a few, you know, really in the first season later on, he's pretty much, as you remember him, very conversational and just another member of the cast. Well, I think that's kind of uh, the only way that the narrator for the series was able to shoehorn himself into that role. Because otherwise, Irwin would say, oh, they, they're going to know it's you. I don't want the narrator and the robot to be the same person. So he gave this whole different version. And then once he was comfortable that I am the robot now, I can, you know, kind of be myself again and actually yeah. start to act, then it kind of evolved into the robot that we know and love. But yeah, he sounds like a completely different person and, and not near as interesting. And it does sound a lot more menacing, too. 
that was one of the things I was going to say. Obviously, he's reprogrammed, and I'm getting a little ahead of myself by Dr. Smith, but he's very menacing. The way he's filmed, the way he moves, the tone of his voice, the, the mechanical, and the music that goes along with him is very menacing, too, as if he's a, presented as a villain. And again, that contrast with the way I typically think of the robot is, is sort of a cuddly teddy bear, you know, Will Robinson's best friend and everything else. So that's quite a change in the character. Now, refresh my memory. We meet Dr. Smith before we meet the robot, don't we? Well, when they're introducing the crew, they say he's actually called a environmental control robot, whatever that means. Yeah, but, he's, uh, he's the thermostat for the AC, basically. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's a little too hot here, robot. Turn it down some. Let's control something. This historic flight, preceded by nearly a decade of intensive research and preparation, has been shrouded by the most rigorous security precautions. Other nations, in even more desperate need for breathing room on our critically crowded planet, are racing the United States in this project. Countries that would go to any lengths of sabotage. But Dr. Smith's entrance is worthy of an academy where just the way he slides out, he's in a... A space couch. He slides out of a cabinet. Oh, come on. And you just no, see his... Don't call it a space couch. Let's call it what it really was. It's a space lazy boy. <laughs> recliner. <laughs> How appropriate. It is perfect. I mean, it's always in a reclined state of repose. Now, I need a nap. I don't know about you. You, you were in the Air Force, so that counts as a government job. But I worked for the regular government, okay? And I could guarantee you that if they had pushed out all the lazy boys at the same time, you probably would have had about six other members of NASA asleep, you know, having <laughs> taken a nap and also fallen asleep inside the Jupiter 2. So it's a good thing they didn't open them all at once. Uh, but you have to admit, it's a great entrance. He leans up, the camera just zooms in on his face, and he's got this look of, I'm up to no good, and you'll, <laughs> you'll soon find out what it's all about. Well, you pointed out a very uh, interesting little bit of trivia, and that is that Jonathan Harris is claustrophobic, and that he refused, refused to be inside that box. And uh, they had to put a stunt double inside the Lazy Boy and then cut as the camera moved from a medium shot to a close-up. And that's how they managed to get uh, Dr. Smith. But the stunt double does look like Dr. Smith from the side, so... It happened so seamlessly that I didn't even realize that there was a cut in there, so it was very well done. But anyway, it's a great entrance, and of course, he's caught inside the ship, and a guard comes in, and then he has to sort of take care of the guard with a, a little Austin... <laughs> Austin Powers judo chop. Karate chop. <laughs> yeah. Oh, dear. And that's the only time I think we ever see him deliver that punch that actually works for Dr. Smith. I mean, uh, you know, it's better than a Vulcan nerve pinch as far as I'm concerned, but it never repeats. I don't think he ever uses it again. So it uh, must depend on Earth gravity in order to make it work or something. <laughs> Well, it's pretty sinister. Just for a second, he looks to where the door, where that says danger, radiation, nuclear reactor. He sort of looks over there like he's going to shove the guy into the nuclear reactor, and then he kind of does a little slight, no, 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 that's too, that's too much. <laughs> this is the family throws, show. <laughs> yes, throws him into the trash bins. You know, he's never actually shown to actually kill anyone. Okay, show, so which is let's talk about that for a moment. You know, he puts him in the waste disposal chute, and he just goes sliding outside. There's no airlock or anything, you know? So know. It's like... It's just... Okay. It's like a doggy door. And a few moments later, Dr. Smith is going to get trapped on board the ship, you know? And it's like, I can't get out, I can't get out. It's sort of like, dude, go through the waste disposal chute, you know? Come on. 
Okay, so you'll bump into the guard, but he's apparently still out cold, so what's the matter? Um, I did also enjoy the guard's rifle. Did you see the guard's rifle? They really skimped on that. <laughs> you know, they just... Oh, tell, remind me, remind it's, me. What, it's, is, it, it's, is it just like a tube or something? Yeah, it's basically a golf club with a few uh, insulators on it, you know, <laughs> and a strap. <laughs> you know, the ones they actually use on the ship to shoot the Cyclops later on and everything, those are, you know, those look pretty sturdy and everything, but these things look like they were thrown together with, you know, props from the Dollar Tree or something. It was pretty embarrassing. Hi, this is Kevin Burns, the executive producer of the new Netflix Lost in Space, and you're listening to Alpha Control Podcast. This is Alpha Control. The Robinson family will prepare to board the space vehicle at once. It is now zero, minus 33 minutes and counting. Well, this whole countdown to launch, it's like two minutes to go, and they still haven't, the Robinsons still haven't gotten into their freezing tubes, and there's technicians on board, and Dr. Smith's on board. They you better get off in a hurry, Doc, you know. <laughs> and I like that when he does get trapped, he throws the fire extinguisher at the windshield, you know, which fortunately it doesn't crack. You know, right? Because I mean, that would have been worse if it didn't break at all. You know, you're going to go into outer space with a cracked windshield. I, I don't think you're going to be able right. to call, you know, the the safety glass people to come help you out there. The interesting thing too about this whole opening, I made a note of this. We go from the cold start all the way through the launch of the Jupiter two. It's eight minutes. Eight minutes before the opening credits even start. That's a long lead in. Now I get it, it's the premiere episode, but later on in the series, I think they shortened that down quite a bit. But after a while, I forgot we hadn't seen the credits. Well, when you're first starting out on a show, I think they give you a lot of leeway on that. I remember other series where you don't even get the theme that you're going to associate with that series at all in the first episode, especially the ones where the theme kind of tells you what's going on. If they have like a first episode where Gilligan's Island was actually sinking in the ship, which they didn't, but if they did, they probably wouldn't have had the little theme at the beginning that tells you the little jingle about how they got stranded after a three-hour tour. You know, so they can do pretty much what they want in that first episode or two. But I think you were telling me later on they even wait longer before they play the theme. Yeah, a couple more episodes in, I think there was like a 10-minute opening to it. But, I mean, it's not a huge deal. I just thought that was kind of interesting because I kept waiting for the theme song to start. And I was like, man, we've been in this show a long time. And it's a great theme song. And so is the one that replaces it later on. Who was it that wrote that? Oh, good question. That was uh, actually Johnny Williams, as he was known then. John Williams of Jaws and Star Wars and Close Encounters. A big, uh, well-known Hollywood soundtrack composer. Johnny Williams wrote the uh, theme song for the first and the second season and the third season, all three seasons. And he wrote a lot of other music that was used. He's credited as the only person in this particular episode for all of the music. So interesting. And did, yeah. did you say he did the second season too, but that's the season they didn't use it? They didn't change the theme for them? They commissioned a score for it, but they wound up not using it. They just used the same score for the... Uh, I heard that on right? YouTube. Anybody could hear it there. It's not... I mean, it's not bad, but it's not as good, I don't think. I, I think they made the right decision in both those calls. Oh, I do. So, Act 1 ends with Dr. Smith's iconic scream as the Jupiter 2 uh, takes off into space. And, you know, it's a good episode when you get a Dr. Smith... <laughs> 
Oh, but Scream. you know, you're kind of leaving out the part where it shows the doctor giving the physicals to Will and the other characters, and it's in dark silhouette, so we're not supposed to know it's Dr. Smith. Will is on this, again, a lazy boy recliner, but this time it's got like this board collective electrical screen behind his head. It's all very futuristic, and it's kind of cool. You know, he gives them all a clean bill of health and everything, but... Am I okay, doctor? Did I pass? You'll do. Did you hear that, Mom? I'm okay. Yes, Will. We heard. We weren't worried, were we? Nah. No need for any of you to worry about your physical condition. You're all in top shape and ready to go. I envy you your adventure. Thank you, Doctor. The strange thing about it is, I don't know why they're doing all these last-minute physicals just before they get on the ship. You would think the most critical piece of uh, medical equipment that they would have would be the way station. Because, I mean, later on, this is the whole reason that they go off <laughs> off course. Because they've measured everybody down to a fraction of an ounce. You know, you think they say, before you step on board, get on board. Okay, you're going to need to drink this, or we're going to need to extract that. You know, do something. Have this laxative, or drink this uh, fatty shake. But no, they just all pile on board. Nobody gives a darn, and, you know, look what happens. That's right. You never see any scenes of them being waged. <laughs> And that becomes a big plot point later on, because like you said, the weight was calculated down to a fraction of an ounce, for God's sakes. I also like the way that Major West, no longer Doctor, eyes Judy as she comes aboard. Did you notice that? He's Oh, like, yes. And she's batting her eyes at him. You know, that's another thing. Originally, Don and Judy were supposed to be more of a love interest. I mean, it's sort of implied a lot that they're an item. I mean, who else are they going to start dating? Yeah. But, uh, I mean, he, he, from the get-go, I mean, this guy knows. I mean, he's going off right. to Alpha Centauri. He's the only male member of the family who's not a member of the family besides right. Smith. But, of course, they don't know Smith is there. So he's just sitting there thinking, man, I just get the pick of the litter, you know? I mean, right. And there exactly. she is. And that's another thing, again and again, that would come back as CBS was putting the squelch on any sort of romantic. Even with John and Maureen, you actually see them kissing in this episode, but there's only a couple more times throughout the entire three seasons that you see them kissing. They were like, this is for family hour. That You know, the little kids don't like all that mush. Well, uh, another little bit that I enjoyed in retrospect, seeing how history wasn't actually the way that it was printed in the series, was the President of the United States in 1997. Man, was he stirred, you know. I mean, he's like, talk about central casting. How much opposite could you get from the actual president? You know, if it had actually happened in real life, instead of like, ladies and gentlemen, I want to wish every member of this family a very distinguished and prosperous journey. Whatever he says, I mean, it would have been more like, <laughs> well, you know, I really admire the way that uh, Don West has got. Uh, I wish I had your job. <laughs> you got some cuties on board. <laughs> you're going to go colonize the new world, man. You're gonna, who knows how many children you're going to have, man. It's really great. Well, Godspeed. Uh, but, you know, it was, it was definitely a lot different from uh, reality. Remove gas transfer and propellant vent umbilicals. Definitely a product of its time, the 1960s. And nobody has teleprompters. You know, apparently in the future, they go back to scripts and pencil and paper and, you know, the dark rimmed eyeglasses. Lots of clipboards and pencils, I noticed, in that opening scene. And a constant but, uh, sound of a teletype. Fifteen seconds. 
I don't know why they would have a teletype in NASA. You know, I mean, but they do, apparently. Ten seconds. Five, four, three, two, one, zero. Space will continue after station identification. This is CBS. Well, when we come back from the break, the Jupiter 2 has reached escape velocity, and Smith, he's still trapped on board. And he wakes up in a cold sweat. He stumbles around trying to get his bearings and sure enough what happens next is a meteor storm starts to hit the Jupiter 2 so now we're in a bit of a bind here well I love the the freeze tube sequence where everybody freezes but then when they lift off you can clearly see everybody sort of moving around especially Will he's not very good at looking frozen he's a little too jittery maybe he had too much coffee I don't know But uh, a fun thing about those freeze tubes is the way that they're designed. In between each one of them is a giant is Jacob's ladder. You know, a Jacob's ladder. Like, I know. What does this do? I mean, anybody who knows science knows that a Jacob's ladder is one of the few pieces of of scientific equipment that every science lab has that does absolutely nothing but just burn power. And on board... And make noise. Yeah. It makes noise. <laughs> and on board a spaceship, the only possible thing it could do is help ignite oxygen fires. <laughs> you know? So it's like, whatever. But uh, it does add to the, well, the scenic beauty. It looks cool. <laughs> it's very scientific. Oh, and uh, Major West, when he thaws and falls out, Smith catches him, and that's a, a great sequence. It looks very believable. You're sitting there saying, please catch him, because, you know, what's he going to do? Shatter into a million pieces if he's not caught? Right. So yeah, it's off to a good start. Hail is 40 number. Come in, please. Do you read me? Mission accomplished. Mission accomplished. What do I do now? What clever instructions do you have for me now? How much more money are you going to pay me for this excursion? Hail is 40 number. Do you know where I am? Do you know? Do you know? Go ahead, lunar tracking. We've got a problem with the Jupiter 2 flight profile. It is now negative. Repeat, negative. Hello, lunar tracking. Hello, Alpha Control. Does anybody read me? Roger. We've been working on it. Our computers tell us there's close to 200 pounds excess weight aboard. It has altered the flight pattern. And I loved the scene with the meteor storm. I thought that was a really cool special effects shot. Abort the mission. Can you hear me? Abort the mission! Alpha Control, initiate an immediate course change. Jupiter 2 is headed directly for a massive meteor swarm. Negative. Vector controls aren't effective. One of the cool things is you actually get to see them coming towards the ship, not just going past the ship, which I thought was a cool view. Yeah, this was probably when they were planning on releasing this as a theatrical version in 3D. You know, the meteors would be coming in. Oh, quick, dodge But they appear to have, like, some sort of interior molten quality. You can see, like, embers inside the... 
Yes. So that they, they yeah. went all out with that. And then they cut to the exterior shot, and that's just as cool. You know, it's just pummeling the, the Jupiter, too. And uh, it almost looks like not only did they enter an asteroid belt, but they are driving right up the center lane of the asteroid belt. And they're trying to, it's like my wife driving. She's got to hit every single bump. <laughs> Look out for that puddle. Oh. <laughs> Wait, there's one to the left. No, no, I didn't say turn left. I meant turn the other way. But they're, they're getting them all, and it, it's pretty cool. Well, Smith wakes Don up with a laser pistol. In his panic, he's managed to destroy the transmitter so they can't even talk to Alpha Control anymore to try to get a bearing on their position or anything. But he does manage to wake Don up, as you oh, said, and that was a good scene. Before you mention that, doesn't he use that same little walkie-talkie he has to try to contact Earth again? I mean, the guy's thousands of miles from Earth, and he's going to try to reach, you know, what's what's the call letters? Ursula 12, 13, or whatever. Aeolus 14 number. Do you read? Do you know where I am? Man, I'm thinking, if, if they actually answered all that, thing the the power pack to that walkie-talkie must be made out of you know dark matter from a black hole or something it's just maybe that would explain where the other 200 pounds came from because i mean let's be honest you know me from college you know i'm not scrawny i'm i'm not a, a weightlifter or anything but i'm 155 pounds and i'm every bit as tall as smith is and a lot bigger than he is so that guy can't possibly be 200 pounds i don't care if he's wearing combat boots and a whole bunch of medals which he doesn't have so i don't know where all maybe that extra weight is a for by the the missing uh, space pod at the belly of the ship that they don't seem to discover until episode three or something. But there's a lot of missing weight to come up with 200 pounds. I don't know where they came up with that. Now, one of the things I thought was also interesting, Lost in Space was famous for having sparks, explosions, and they have some in this. Not only is the exterior of the ship being pummeled by uh, meteors, but inside the computers are starting to spark and there's flash powder explosions. It was pretty dramatic and smoke coming up. Don's woke up. He gets the Jupiter 2 out of the center lane, as you say, of the uh, asteroid field. And then right away... Dr. Smith is all about, hey, we got to get back to Earth. And Don's like, yeah, I'm going to wake up the crew here. And <laughs> Dr. Smith right away is like, no, don't do that. Yeah. <laughs> he goes, well. Points a gun at him. But the, Points a gun, but he's, yes. But he's behind him, so Wes doesn't notice it. We notice it, but but he doesn't. Right. And for a moment there, it looks like he's going to actually kill West, which, of course, would be stupid because no one's going to fly the ship. And Wes says something that convinces him otherwise. Well, he says, I'm waking up the Robinsons, and he says, since I'm the only one who can fly this ship, I'm going to make that decision. Yeah, that's it. And so Dr. Smith sort of lowers the pistol and says, oh, I guess I'll have to go along with this. So he wakes up the crew, and Maureen falls out, and she's had some ill effects from the whole freezing process, and so that's one of the first dramatic little episodes that happens. And that's the best acting that she delivers in this whole episode. I mean, she really looks like she's waking up out of suspended animation. It's very convincing. But, you know, after all those seasons of sleepwalking through a role at Lassie, I guess that's helped train her with the finer art of cryonic suspension or whatever. (laughs) (laughs) Good point. Lost in Space, brought to you by...
Just a little sheet of Reynolds wrap can do more for a woman than any other wrap, except mink. Reynolds wrap freezes food better, keeps it fresh. Reynolds wrap protects food better, seals flavor in. Just a little sheet of Reynolds wrap can do more for a woman than any other wrap, except mink. Why? Because every foot of Reynolds wrap is oven tempered for flexible strength. It's so strong, so tear-resistant, so versatile. It's, it's practically the least expensive wrap you can buy. Reynolds Wrap. Wouldn't you hate to be without it? So they wake up, and of course they're all shocked to find out that Dr. Smith is on board, the ship is damaged, they're off course, they don't know where they are. We're off course. We don't know how far yet. Don's trying to determine whether we should return to Earth or not. There's no question about what we must do. You saw your wife's metabolic reaction to the suspended animation state? I warn you, Robinson, she might not survive another such trauma. Don't worry, darling. No matter what we decide, I won't let you back in that tube. The media's clobbered us. Our whole control system is badly damaged. You're supposed to be a space pilot and qualified. Improvise something. Turn us around and get us back to Earth. If I were you, Colonel, I keep my mouth shut. Don! You're responsible for this mess we're in. Really, Major? Have you bothered to wonder who revived you? You tumbled out of there like a block of ice, dead as a coffin nail. Who do you think brought you back to life? Thanks. Our payload was calculated to a fraction of an ounce. Without his extra weight, we would have ducked the media storm automatically. Maybe and maybe not. But without me, not one of you would be alive now. All right, Colonel Smith. We're properly grateful. Right now, we have to make a decision. I'm not sure we should turn back, even if we can. Look here. You people volunteered for this expedition. I did not. I have no business being here. I demand to be taken back to Earth. Don, do you have any idea of our present position? Not precisely. They don't know where they are, and uh, they don't know if they're going to go back to Earth. They've got to decide what they're going to do at this point. So they're going to have a powwow, the three most important decision makers on board. That would be... Miss Robinson, Major West, and of course, Miss Robinson. What's that? You you thought we repeated Miss Robinson? No, because Professor Robinson doesn't have an opinion. (laughs) No, he doesn't have one. In fact, he (laughs) says that. She says, well, well, what's your opinion? He says, I don't have one. I'm going to let the computer decide. (laughs) I'm going to have to remember that. We're going to have to get a computer so that, you know, whenever I don't want to contradict the wife to say, we'll let the computer decide. Uh, He's not, uh, that's one way to stop a population explosion on alpha control, isn't it? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, God. In the meantime, though, Dr. Smith has noticed that the robot's power circuit is engaged. Oh my God, that is the best reaction shot in the whole series. You don't even see what he's looking at. You just see him look up and this look of shock on his face and it's like, oh my God, he just pooped pellets in his pants. You don't know what it is. And then it shows what it is. Oh my God, yeah, no wonder he's uh, worried about that. It really is. So he goes downstairs. In the meantime, upstairs to the upper deck, they're trying to decide if they could possibly figure out where they are, and the only way to repair the navigation system is to turn off the artificial gravity. 
it's a pretty fun little scene with everybody floating around. The girls' ponytails are all bouncing around. It's like there must have been a lot of static energy in their spacesuits because they just like go the opposite direction instantly, almost like someone's tugging on them with fishing line or something. It just suddenly yanks up. But uh, other than that, it's pretty convincing. Although you notice that the lighting dramatically drops as they try to hide the wires that everybody's... Oh, yeah. It works. It's a good scene, and it's it's kind of fun, and the kids are bouncing around, so that's a, a little bit of lighthearted. And you mu- and you know that everybody in the 1960s audience was probably, especially kids, were adoring the thing. Oh, how cool this is! I mean, they're floating in air; they can like fly. You know, it's like everybody's right. fantasy about space travel, and there they're doing it. Well, we take it for granted now because we've seen so many shows and, and movies where they're showing zero-G effects, and of course they do it a lot more convincingly now, but at the time, that was pretty good. I, I still think it holds up pretty well. Yeah, and it's one thing to float in outer space with a spacesuit, but it's another to do it inside a spaceship without any spacesuit. You know, you're there in air, and you're just floating around, and I don't think people ever saw that before, except maybe in comic no. books. Well, meanwhile, Dr. Smith is downstairs, and apparently he didn't get the memo that they were going to turn the artificial gravity off because he's also sort of trapped in midair. And then when they turn the gravity back on, it's another pretty funny scene when he slaps back down on the floor and it (laughs) gets sort of uh, momentarily knocked out. But eventually he comes back to his senses and he's back up and fiddling with the robot and manages to deactivate the robot by taking the all-important power pack out of the robot. When suddenly, Will drops in. Hey, what are you doing there? You're not supposed to do that. Now, who's the doctor, you or me? But they told us in one of the briefings. Would you like me to teach you to program him to play chess? You play chess, don't you? Ever play on a three-dimensional board? Did you know that I was the Grand Master of the Oxford University Chess Society for three years running? My dad said you were left the board when you came down to adjust the helium nitrogen intake. That's right. But the helium nitrogen intake valve's on the upper level. Oh? Well, who said anything about the intake valve? It's the emergency supply I was concerned about. Oh. Then I'd better go back and tell them they were wrong about you. Wrong? Why, what did they say? Well... Major West said that when he went to cadet school, an excuse like yours wouldn't have got him out of Sunday chapel. <laughs> Smith delivers one of my favorite lines. He goes, He said that, did he? Well, that's the military mind for you. Kill or be killed. That's all they understand. Oh, but he's not like that. Kill or be killed. That's all they understand. <laughs> and how right he is. <laughs> You know, now that you mention it, Smith is making it sound like he's not a member of the military, but he's a colonel, right? So who is he to talk about the military mindset unless it also applies to him? But then again, if you stop and think about it, you know, he also managed to convince everybody at NASA that he was, NASA, that he was a physician, you know, and he got the job. So this guy apparently can't be as much of an idiot or maybe it's the reverse. He's an idiot, but the people at NASA are even greater idiots. But That is a good point, too. And they do intermittently refer to him, now that you mention it, as Colonel Smith or Dr. Smith. It's one or the other in these first few episodes. And that Colonel Smith goes away relatively soon. I think it's maybe three or four episodes into the show. You never hear him referred to as Colonel again. Uh, but you're, yeah, he was actually in the Air Force, so that's kind of funny. I, I got to give you a little history on why I keep calling NASA Nassau. I had a niece... <laughs> 
who actually went down to the Bahamas and they were in Nassau. And she said, so, so where's the uh, launch station? <laughs> Nassau, the Bahamas? Yeah. <laughs> uh, oh, goody. Uh, and of course, one second later, Smith, always thinking of another angle to get back to Earth, looks, stick your tongue out, boy. How long have you had that? Had what? That touch of virus on your tongue. I don't know. Well, you can feel it, can't you? I guess so. I must have been blind not to spot it before liftoff. I thought freezing kills any virus. You thought? It's a good thing I'm the doctor, not you. Do you know what that virus would have done while the rest of your body was in a state of metabolic deanimation? Just taken it over bit by bit. After five years, there'd be nothing left but the metal in your spacesuit. All the rest of you would be one big raging mass of virus. I'd better go and tell your mom and dad. We've got to return to Earth immediately. But... Stay right there. In quarantine. Well, anyway, while Dr. Smith is upstairs informing the rest of the crew that we've got to head back, Will, being the ever-curious, precocious boy genius, notices that the robot's power pack is out. So he puts the robot's power pack back in. And what happens? Robot goes on a search-and-destroy mission. Yeah, he tries to stop him. Uh, I order you to stop, but to no effect, you know. Negative. And then he moves over to the electronic elevator, which they make a big point of pointing out. It's not a steam engine one. No, this is the full futuristic electronic elevator. And he goes all the way up to the second deck and destroy, destroy. Delivers a jolt of electricity to Dr. Smith, who orders him, to abort, to abort, I order you to abort. (laughs) And he gets shocked. It doesn't kill him, but he gets thrown back. And Major West makes a, or Major West stunt double makes a daring dive for the power pack. Destroy. Smith at that point is just giving everyone instructions. (laughs) Go for the power pack. Professor Robinson hides behind his wife for a little while. (laughs) I guess he's hoping the the robot will shock her too and maybe help, you know, eliminate her memory of the early argument about, you know, whether they should return to Earth or something, you know, so he won't spend the next 20 years on Alpha Centauri, a a total virgin. But uh, no reminiscence of Zorro. I guess he's more the academic sort at that point. Yes, well, they didn't provide him with a fencing foil at that point, so maybe that would have helped him. But yeah, I thought that whole sequence when the robot is knocking out pieces of equipment, the ship is tipping over, and the shots where the camera is panning over, obviously, and they're reacting to it, I thought that was pretty well done. And also, it's one of the few times you'll see the robot actually walking moving his legs independently, his feet independently. Most of the time you'll see the robot not walking, just rolling. Sometimes you actually, in the DVDs, you can actually see that they have little cables that are pulling him along on the floor, and the legs are are sort of secured together. Other times, they'll only shoot him from the waist up, 
and he actually doesn't have the legs on it. Bob May is walking around with just the top portion of the robot, and you don't see him. And it's easy to tell when they're doing that because he's, he's actually bouncing around walking, but this time you get the whole body shot of him. And the reason they didn't do that very much after this initial episode was because there was very little room inside that costume, and it was basically bare metal on the inside, and Bob May's lower legs were just shredded, basically. Mm-hmm. I mean, his, his feet were in bandages after that, so they decided that wasn't really worth the effort. Plus, he's so slow, it's almost like, you know, right. uh, you're running from the zombies from uh, Night of the Living Dead, where, you know, you could basically walk away from them, as opposed to having to really run from them, like, 28 days later, where they can run too, or or World War right. Z, it's just not as scary when he's uh, inching his way, shuffling towards you slowly in slow-mo. Right. You can't help but wonder, how the heck are they going to fix the ship at this point? I mean, every firework and every sprinkler that could go off has gone off. Even the Jacob's <laughs> Ladders have shot a few zaps and stuff. It's sort of like, yeah, how can they even breathe the air? There's so much smoke in there. But I guess they have good, you know, exhaust fans on board, and it probably shoots all the bad air through the waste disposal chute. <laughs> Actually, probably the speed that they're going, because now they're in hyper speed. You know, it goes into hyper drive. When that happens, you're probably traveling so fast, there's probably a very strong draft going to that waste disposal chute. <laughs> it's, it's sucking all the smoke out. That, that's it, all they cr- had to do. If they just turned around and followed the smoke path, they could have gone right back to Earth, but they didn't think of that. No, uh, they didn't think of that. And, of course, there's a very dramatic scene where they cut back to Alpha Control, and the, the watch officer pulls up the scrambler phone and makes a call to the president and utters the iconic line that the Jupiter 2 is now hopelessly lost, lost in, space. in space. Lost in Space has been brought to you by... Support for this nonprofit podcast is made in part by... Monster Wax Trading Cards, limited edition producers of science fiction, horror, and monster trading cards since 1992. For more information, see the website at monsterwax.com. So when we come back from the break, it's been confirmed that our castaways in the Jupiter 2 are hopelessly lost in space. And they want to try to repair their NGS scanner so they can get a fix on their position. But the only way to do that is to actually do a spacewalk, which is kind of cool. And so Professor Robinson draws the short straw, and he'll be the one to go out of the spacecraft to try to do that repair job on the antenna. And this is leading us into our cliffhanger ending for this episode. I just want to digress here for a second. What did you think of their spacesuits? The Reynolds wrap. I, I liked it. The Reynolds wrap. Yeah. Yeah. It looked uh, looked pretty cool. And the the odd thing was is that Dr. Smith was basically in his uh, military greens, not fatigues, but, you know, dress pants and dressed uh, jacket. And he didn't seem any the worse for wear. But, you know, that only makes sense. After all, they were being put in the freeze tube. So, you know, you don't want to get that freeze burn that you get when you've been stuck in the freezer for 98 years. So they had to they had to wrap them in, uh, in Reynolds wraps. <laughs> the costume designer was a 
buddy of Irwin Allen's. His name was Paul Zastupnevich. He actually makes a cameo in the opening scene when they're in Alpha Control. He's one of the reporters on that upper deck, the mezzanine level that's on the phone. He's the guy with the uh, the goatee up there. So if you watch it again, look for him. But he used like fire retardant material like firefighters would use, that silver material to make the costumes. And of course, they cut them so close for the girls. They, they were so form-fitting that June Lockhart said, I couldn't even sit down in the... Uh, costume. They actually had to build special reclining boards that when they would rest between takes because uh, they couldn't sit down in them, which I thought was kind of funny. They're very hot, too, but I thought they looked pretty good. Oh, they, yeah. But anyway, getting back to the story, Professor Robinson is outside performing that spacewalk, and he's trying his best to climb up the side of the Jupiter 2 and get up to the roof where he can access that NGS scanner. But for some reason, he just can't make it up there. And then he's pulling on the rope, and uh, it can't be an American rope. It has to be a commie rope, because just at that second, it breaks. And now he's cut loose from the ship, and he's drifting helplessly out into space. Oh, what on earth are they going to do now? Well, I guess anywhere other than Earth, but that piece of rope, it had never been used before. It, it, it fails <laughs> in the very first mission that it's on. The, yes. it, it doesn't bode well for the rest of the equipment on board, does it? Obviously, Underwriters Laboratory didn't uh, yeah. give that the seal of approval. And speaking of equipment on board, you know, you would think that maybe somebody would find this, this shattered little uh, walkie-talkie on board that Smith threw down. You know, this is like the most crucial part of evidence of who he is and what he's all about. And he just throws it on the floor. And nobody finds this thing in the remaining three years of episodes of Lost in Space. But uh, it works. They, they never seem to put two and two together. They know he's up to something. But nobody ever stopped to think he's actually the saboteur out to kill them all. But that's one of the surprising things about these first three episodes. The guy is a cold-blooded murderer. I mean, he was ready to, to send them all off to die. And uh, suffice it to say that there's a lot more to Smith than meets the eye. Oh, yes. He's, he's very sinister. He's very nefarious. And he shows a little bit of his later character development. I mean, he has his eloquent way of speaking, the extended vocabulary. And, but he's much more the heavy in this episode, in the first few episodes, than he will be later on. He's not, he doesn't seem ridiculous in Yeah, and he's, uh, he's he, quick-witted, too. Like When he has that argument where they're supposedly trying to decide where they're going to go back to Earth and everything, and he's saying, of course we're going to go back to Earth. And Major West just says, you know, if I were you, Colonel, I'd shut my mouth. <laughs> and and, and Don, that's what Judy says at that point. And he says, well, it's, it is his fault that we're here in the first place. You know, we're 200 pounds off and down to the fraction of the ounce. And that's why the automatic guidance system didn't save us. And Smith quickly goes, really, Major? Did you stop to consider who saved you as you fell tumbling right. out like a block of ice? You know, it was I. Yeah. Later on, it'll be his back, of course, that will provide him with the endless excuses why he can't possibly help. And the batophobia, which, of course, is the fear of heights. <laughs> <laughs> well, running out of options, Marine suits up and exits the airlock to try to save her husband, who's slipping further and further away from the Jupiter II. Using the rocket gun, she tries to shoot a line to him, but unfortunately, it passes inches away from John's grasp. Oh dear, now what? Well, before we can find out, the freeze frame slides in to remind us that this episode is to be continued next week. Same time, same channel.
talk about a cliffhanger, Kurt. Oh, my. <laughs> well, before we finish, give us your assessment of The Reluctant Stowaway. Well, it's hard to imagine how this series could have possibly survived without Smith because, I mean, all these favorite moments are orbiting him. We like the other characters and we like the seriousness of it and everything, but it's kind of sobering to think that they were intending on killing him. You know, I think that there there would have probably been some happiness uh, when that happened at first because we all would have thought, thank God, they're out of danger. But then by the next episode or two, we would have desperately been missing him. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, because that is one of the things I noticed even watching the unaired pilot. It's definitely missing something. It's good. It's very good. But you can't see that show could have gone three seasons without a character like Dr. Smith. Well, what about the plot? Did it hold your attention from start to finish? Anytime they get into some of their special effects like spacewalking and stuff, it always seems a little bit padded out. There's always like a scene in the first several episodes that is padded out where they're running around in hallways or they're uh, somewhere in a, a derelict ship or a lost city or something like that. Where it's just it's sort of like, okay, if we're short minutes and we need to add something here, we'll just this is where it's going to go. And in this episode, it's the spacewalk, you know, so there is some padding in there. And that's understandable because, you know, when you're writing a script, you can't be sure how long it's going to run, especially if it's not all dialogue. And when they get into the spacewalk, that's pretty quiet stuff. But I'm reminded of movies like Rocket Ship X, whatever that one was. Rocket Ship XM. Yeah, was that's that? the one. And, and other ones along those lines where they would have some sort of spacewalk and everything. And it, it was very much in that feel and pretty cool. It was just reminiscent of that era. Yeah, I agree with you. Other than the spacewalk, I thought it was a pretty tight script and it moved along well. Another element about the script I thought was interesting, and this is the difference between this show and another show that we talked about earlier, Star Trek, which is going to premiere a year after Lost in Space. This is much more Irwin Allen style of science fiction TV show. It's basically action. It's adventure. It's pretty straightforward. In fact, one of Irwin Allen's famous quotes was, if you want to send a message, try Western Union. So he's not, he's not trying to do social commentary here. He's just trying to keep the eyeballs and the excitement going, the explosions, the special effects. In contrast to a producer like Gene Roddenberry, who's very much all about yeah. using the science fiction vehicle to talk about issues of the day. And, you know, they both have their place. I like both of them, obviously. But to me, it is what it is. I enjoy it for what it is. And it's an alternative to Star Trek. Someone once compared Lost in Space said, this is more like Gilligan's Island than it is Star Trek. I mean, it has more in common with Gilligan's Island than Star Trek. Right. To some extent, that's true. So it's just a whole different feel. I agree with you. Well, folks, that wraps up this episode of Alpha Control. Join us again next time when we will be reviewing the second episode of Lost in Space titled The Derelict. I'm looking forward to that one. Until then, take care, and we'll see you soon. Good night, Kurt. Good night. Thanks, fellow Galactic Castaways, for listening to the Alpha Control Podcast. Please leave your comments or questions on our Facebook page, Twitter, or email us at alphacontrolpodcast at gmail.com. Subscribe to the podcast via libsyn.com. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N dot com. Or through iTunes. If you like the show, please leave us a review as well. Thanks again. And we'll see you next week.
Same time, same channel.